0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, Bethelbible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Now then, at long last, we want to turn our attention to the book of Romans. We are in our third week Our third message in the book of Romans will be in Romans chapter 1. Now, as we head into the thick and the meat of Romans chapter 1, I want to talk briefly about setting things right. I want to talk about setting things right. I don't know all of you all that well, but here's what I am almost absolutely certain of is that there are things going on in your lives that aren't right. There's health issues, there's relational calamity, there's financial burden, there's marital stress, there's issues with your kids or with your parents or with your work, or maybe you have been the victim of some malicious slander or some character assassination or something is not right in your world, and you, if you're anything at all like the rest of the population, begins to wonder, gosh, why is all of this happening? Why are all these bad things happening? I thought God was sovereign and good. Why are these things happening? Why won't he just set things right? This morning, we get to hear the message of the gospel, that God is in the business of setting things right. Now, I want to talk about Martin Luther. 500 years ago, Martin Luther was consumed by this idea of things being set right. The word that we have in our Bible that we talk about in church is righteousness. We'll talk more about that here in a moment. But Martin Luther was consumed by this concept of righteousness because he knew that he was not. He was a miserable human being. He hated the idea of righteousness because he knew that he was not and that God demanded it. That if God suddenly went about setting everything right in the universe then he would be obliterated and so he was a miserable human being he did everything in his power to try to establish his own righteousness to set himself right before god and so consequently he recognized that he could not do it and so he said i hate righteousness and love god no i do not love god i hate him because he demands that from me which i cannot ever achieve or produce In fact, he would go to confession and he would sit in there for three to four to five hours confessing every thought, every idea he had ever had in the last 24 hours until finally the priests that he served with as monks in his monastery would literally get into physical altercations and fights trying to get out of confession duty when they saw Martin Luther coming. And finally, the the head priest, the father said, Luther, get over it. Just get over it. He was a miserable human being until He read the book of Romans until he read the book of Galatians, until he taught the book of Psalms. And then the Lord raised the veil and he began to understand. So this morning, we're just going to cover two verses about this being set right, how it is, in fact, the gospel. Romans chapter one. I'm just going to read verses 16 and 17, and we'll spend some time unpacking these passages. Romans chapter one, verses 16 and 17. Paul writes, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is God's word. Now we want to spend a little bit of time unpacking this, What Luther came to understand as he read these two verses is our big idea for the morning. It's our takeaway. If you take nothing else away from this morning, I hope you take this. It's our big idea. It goes like this. What God demands of you, he freely gives to you. Now, that's the gospel. And it is unlike any other system of belief, any other religious construct in existence. What God demands of you He freely gives to you that is absolutely foreign and alien to any other organizing narrative of a person's life. So we want to spend some time unpacking this. Remember that Paul is writing the book of Romans, sitting in Corinth during his third missionary journey, during his painful visit. He's heard about these churches in Rome that exist apart from apostolic foundations. Something has happened. They have begun, and they are flourishing. And Paul says, I want to come to see you. I want to be there so that I can preach the gospel to you because I have direct instruction and information and revelation from the risen Lord Jesus himself. I want to build into you. I want to bless you. I want to bolster you by giving you the gospel as well. And the entire theme of the book of Romans we're going to see really articulated this morning in these two verses. The whole theme of the book of Romans is the righteousness of God given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at these two verses. These two verses of which Martin Luther said, Romans 1, 16, and 17 are the verses that ushered me into paradise. From being a miserable monk ushered into paradise through these two verses. And as I have thought this week, have been overwhelmed by the enormity and the gravity of these two verses, it has struck me, what if this morning, in this service, perhaps in our second service, if some of you, for the first time, were actually ushered into paradise? That's my prayer, that's my hope. Well, let's start unpacking this. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, Paul says, "...for... Now, I'm not going to obsess about every single word, but we have to understand that this verse exists in context. There is no meaning apart from context. When Paul says, for, I am not ashamed of the gospel, he is connecting to his previous thought. The first 15 verses of Romans chapter 1 are driving to this point. The whole book of Romans is the summary of the Bible, and the whole book of Romans is Paul's exposition of Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, where God credits righteousness declares that Abraham is set right, if you will, by faith. Paul says, I I never understood that, but now I do. And he writes 16 chapters to exposit and explain Genesis 15, 6. He says, I want to preach the gospel to you, believers in Rome. Now, that's really important. Yes, he also says and also to the rest of the Gentiles in Rome. So he wants to disciple, he wants to evangelize. It's a both-and thing, but it's very, very important. He wants to preach the gospel to believers because he understands that nobody, believer, apostle, pastor, elder, deacon, leader, teacher, nobody ever goes beyond the gospel. It is always to be the centrality of our lives, always. And Paul understands that the gospel means something. Now, Perhaps you, if you're like me at all, have heard this verse preached over and over again where Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. And perhaps you've heard some fiery preacher say, now you see there, you should not be ashamed to be a Christian. And they shame you for being ashamed of being a Christian. To be true, we should not be ashamed of being Christians or ashamed of our faith or ashamed of Christ. But that's not what this verse is saying. That is a true statement. We should not be ashamed. But that's not what this verse is saying. Paul says, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. So again, what does he mean? Paul says, I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed is Paul's response to an accusation that was made against him that he was embarrassed or afraid or offended to come to Rome. Because in Rome, it's the capital of the Gentile world. It is the the epicenter of secular intellectual thought where Seneca and all these other thinkers and writers and philosophers lived. And it's also where Caesar lived, where Caesar is proclaimed as Lord. And so the thought had been, the accusation was made, hey, Paul, you are ashamed to come here. But Paul is absolutely not. He wants to make that very clear. Again, 4 in verse 16 looks back at verse 15. Paul says, I am eager to come to you to preach the gospel because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, we find out in 2 Corinthians that Paul had been shamed Repeatedly, over and over again, beaten with rods, stoned, flogged, shipwrecked, uh, robbed by bandits. He experienced all these travails and trials. He had been shamed over and over and over again by the gospel. But he was never, ever ashamed of the gospel. Now, that's a very interesting distinction, which leads me to my first principle. We're just going to do these in line as we walk through this passage. First principle, first point is this. Being shamed is a challenge. Being ashamed is a choice. Being shamed is a challenge. You're going to meet resistance if you adhere to and live by the centrality of the gospel. That's that's a challenge that's going to come into you. And if you never, ever receive opposition because of the gospel, I'm here to tell you there's something about your life that seems very congruent with a system of worldliness, which is a synonym for Christlessness. You're going to meet opposition for the gospel. Now, you can try to change the gospel so that nobody ever dislikes you to your detriment. Shame is a challenge. Being ashamed is a choice. That's all the difference in the world. And by the way, we are alive, obviously, in 2019, and the world has changed markedly from where most of us were born. When most of us were born in that age and in that generation, most of us were shamed because we believed a thing that most of the world said was wrong. And we received shame because people said, I can't believe you believe that. You are wrong about that. But the world has changed. Now, you're not shamed for believing a thing. You are shamed for believing that there is a thing to believe. The only categories that exist now really are, are you arrogant or are you tolerant? Not do you believe this or this or this or this or this. The only categories that really culturally, societally in the West that exist are, are you an arrogant person that says there is something that is to be believed, meaning you are right and somebody else is wrong, that's arrogance, or are you tolerant? Where everybody can believe anything that they want because there is no absolute root or source of truth. You will be shamed if you say that you are right and anybody else is wrong. That is a challenge that's coming. But what you don't have to be is ashamed. That's a choice. Paul says, "For I am not ashamed of the gospel." Well, I hope by now, if you've been to this campus long enough, you have heard this so that you can recite it in your sleep what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. One of the many, many passages that we have that defends and articulates that definition is Romans 1, 16 and 17. I love this definition. I live this definition. It's not just ever about dying one day and going to heaven. It is about a person, not a thing. A person that is Christ and what he has done so that we are set right with God and we are set right with one another it's a person what he has done and Paul says it is itself the gospel is the power of God the gospel itself is the power of God moving forward Paul explains why he's not ashamed because this power of God that is unto salvation it's absolutely huge it is the power the dunamis, where we get our word for dynamite, it is explosive, it's transformative, it does a thing. The gospel is the power of God aimed at humankind so that they can have something that would otherwise be utterly impossible. That's the gospel. I am moving at you to set you right. I am moving at you to enrighteousize you. I know that's not a word. In English, we have a word we say Justify. It's in Greek, the same word, justify, righteous. It's the same word. We lack that word in English. I wish we had it. It would be to set right or enrightify, if I can make that one up. That's the power of the gospel, to enrightify somebody. I wonder, have you been enrightified? Are you living the enrightified life? Paul says, it is the power of God for salvation. Now, I got to camp out here for just a moment. For salvation. Now, this is, again, where I get to, for the third week in a row, invite you to oil the hinges on your doctrinal defense gates. Easy. Let them, let them swing just a little bit. I'm not challenging the deity of Christ. I'm not challenging the doctrine of the Trinity. I'm not challenging that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. None of those things. I'm just saying, when Paul says salvation, he likely means a little bit different thing than you and I think of. Paul says salvation, he means something a little bit different than what comes to our mind in this culture and in this context. Yes, the gospel is the power to make converts. Yes, the gospel is the power to take people who are enemies of God, who are objects of wrath, who are enemies, and to transform them into trophies of grace to to make them believers. Yes, the gospel is that. But it is so much more. To think of the gospel and salvation as merely justification is only an idea that's about 100 to 120 years old in the West. For 1900 years, the church has thought completely differently about salvation. It's included sanctification and glorification, all of them equally important and inextricably linked. Paul says in Thessalonians, you are being saved through sanctification. So, it is that we have been saved, we are being saved, we are in the process of having already been saved, that's Ephesians 2.8, and we will as yet be saved. That's the idea that Paul has when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation, not just at one moment in time but for your entire existence for all eternity. Your justification, your enrightification, if you will, your sanctification, where you are conformed to the image of the Son of God, and ultimately your glorification, where you're standing and your reality are identical. Why do believers still have to be saved? It's always a question. Paul says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome, the believers, the saints. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation. Why do people who are saved need the gospel? Because God is already in the process of setting things right. And there will come a time when he will utterly set everything right. He will inrightify all of creation. Now, just to give us another author to come alongside and help us out with this a little bit more clearly, the writer of Hebrews, in chapter 9, verses 27 and 28, says this. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. He's coming back, y'all. That's the tweet from that verse. Not to deal with sin, because that's already been dealt with, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. To save the saved. That's the gospel. There will come a time when God will treat the world the way he treated Christ on the cross. What you going to do then? You're going to claim, well, I've been pretty good since I got saved. You, you, you don't want to say that. You, you don't want to say that. You want to be told by Paul and the book of Romans and the Holy Spirit, I claim the righteousness of Christ. You see, it is not enough to merely have your sin removed. You must also be full of the righteousness of God himself. We'll talk about that here in just a moment. Those who have been saved will also be saved. How? By being found in Christ. That one human being who is completely, totally, utterly, and fully already set right. He is enrightified fully. And when God pours out final judgment on the world, how will you get through? The gospel is you will be found in Christ, who is already set right. Now, I hope for some of you, that begins to carbonate some of your spinal fluid and make you tingle in the brain and go, whoa, God's done some pretty amazing things with me. Mm Mm-hmm. And that ought to lead us to, to, to glory and to praise in what He has done. This salvation is a big deal. In fact, I'll give our next point, our definition of salvation. I've mentioned it in several series and studies before, but here's our working definition of salvation. It is an event and a process. It's both. It is an event and a process in which a person is brought into right relationship with God. They are set right. They are enrightified. And they are being enrightified, and they will be enrightified. Salvation is an event and a process in which this happens. And then Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone. Now we kind of need to stop and just, glory and praise at the availability and the accessibility of that word everyone it is the power of God for salvation to everybody that leaves out nobody remember previously last week's message in Romans Paul said that he was a debtor to Greeks and barbarians to wise and foolish now you think about this Paul is a Jew of Jew a Pharisee of Pharisees the most moral guy ever you would think he would look at Greeks and barbarians the wise of the secular world, and the foolish with disdain. But he doesn't. He looks at them and says, I am a debtor. I owe them something. I am in their debt. Now, I preached that on Sunday. This is literally, I'm not good at math, but I think that's like only seven days ago. And I found myself just a few days ago having a conversation with a dear uh, believer in the Lord, loves the Lord, loves Jesus, loves the church, loves people, but this person was going off on the squad. Some of you know who the squad is. It's this sort of derisive term of a group of rookie freshman congresswomen who don't generally get portrayed in a positive light by conservative media. Perhaps you've heard of them. And this person was going on and on about how much he disdained them. And I'm going to level with you. I snapped right in, and I was railing as well. I mean, it didn't take any effort whatsoever for me to just slide into some character assassination and some verbal abuse. of the, And then I realized, oh, man, Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish. Paul said, I am a debtor to them. And I'll be totally transparent. I didn't feel much like a debtor to them felt disdain, felt anger, and it hit me. That's because I misunderstand the gospel. That's because I still feel in some way I'm a little bit better than them. Like I wasn't as big an enemy of God as they are to my own shame. Paul says I am a debtor to them because the gospel is for everyone Who believes? And now, finally, week three, those of you who have been uncomfortable with all of this God initiating salvation, God choosing, God moving, God doing, now we get to the human responsibility piece, and you can breathe easy. Ah, the gates are going to sit right back in place now. There is a human response, without question, to everyone who believes. But, yes, people must believe, but it is not a one-moment-in-time kind of belief. The verb tense that Paul uses, it's the imperfect tense, is to everyone who keeps on believing, who believes and is a believer and keeps on believing. It's not just a punctiliar moment in time. It is a persistence that goes on. Salvation is for everyone who continues to believe. In other words, it's not ever described as just this one thing we did that one time way back then. It is a lifelong, enduring belief. And Paul's going to say this over and over and over again in the book of Romans. Belief, hear me very carefully, very quickly, is not something that we do. Belief is a response and an acceptance of what God has done. Belief is never a thing that we do that God rewards. That's not how that works. Belief in no way accomplishes something that God has to respond to himself. Belief simply requires assent and recognition that God requires something that we could never produce on our own. He offers freely to enrightify us. What God demands of us, he gives freely to us. Do you see? That's the acceptance of belief. In other words, belief is not merely agreeing with a set of doctrines. Belief is trusting a person that he has done it and that it counts. Or I might say it like this. Our faith doesn't save us, but we can't be saved without it. Your faith does not save you. Romans is going to say over and over again, it is the faithfulness of Jesus, but you can't be saved without faith. I know that's a little bit of a tension. Embrace it, love it, learn to live in it. Our faith doesn't save us, but you can't be saved without it. It's that key. It is a necessary, required human response, and that is our responsibility. Belief and faith are the lifelong responsibility of every believer because it is a life lived on the grounds of the gospel. Which leads to my next point. It goes like this, which will probably be philosophically and logically vexing to some of you, and I'm totally fine with that. You can always email my call, he'll answer all your questions. It goes like this Believing is the evidence of belief. I know that's circular what Eugene Peterson called a long obedience in the same direction. Believing is the evidence of belief. How do I know that I believe? Because I believe. And I have believed, and I continue to believe, and I will never not love the fact that as an enemy of God who is running in the wrong direction, God enrightified me. Despite all my assumptions that I could get there on my own, He enrightified me anyway. Someone who said some words when they were seven years old so that they could get some red punch and graham crackers, but never once actually lived as if the gospel was true and walks away later in life. And we've all got friends and family members like this. 1 John 2 says that they went out from us because they were never actually of us. And so when you see somebody in your church, in your family that begins to, we want to say it's backsliding, And you say, well, listen, I I know who you are. I was there. You said some words when you were seven. You took a knee. You said a thing. That's not how we come and talk to people who are in that vein. We say, please believe the gospel because I'm not sure that you ever actually have. That's how we comfort people. That's how we convict people. Just because they said some words in syntactical order when they were seven does not a believer make necessarily. Belief is the evidence of belief or believing is the evidence of belief. When God declares someone righteous and conforms them to the image of His Son and carries them through to glory, that person is never undeclared righteous because God has enrightified them. They are found in Christ. We'll spend a whole lot more time on that later in the book of Romans. Paul says it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then the Greek. What is going on here? Why would Paul say this? Why would he waste the parchment and the pen to say first to the Jew and also to the Greek? Because it is for everyone. Who does that leave out? Paul is leveling the playing field. What does it mean that it is first for the Jew? Does it mean you should never, ever, ever evangelize Gentiles unless you've evangelized Jews first? No, it doesn't mean that. It also does not mean that Jews if they uh, do come to faith, that are some super special or varsity Christians. doesn't mean that either. It also doesn't mean that there is a different mechanism or means of salvation for Jewish people. No, no, no. Salvation has always been, by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, either looking forward to the Messiah or looking back to the Messiah. Here's what it does mean to the Jew first. It means that God chose them as his people for no other reason than God said so. God's the ultimate parent. How come, God? Because I said so. He looks around. He sees Abram sitting in Ur of the Chaldees, worshiping the moon, who's in his dotage with a barren wife and says, that's what I'm going to start a new people with. Because that's what God does. And he says, I chose you and from you will be my chosen people. I didn't choose you because you were the best, the strongest, the most numerous. He says in Deuteronomy 7. I chose you because you're the last and the lost and the least. I know that's sort of offensive, but God chose them. And so to the Jew first, the blessings, the promise of salvation come through a Jewishness. Not only that, we're told in Romans that, in Romans 11 that the promises, the covenants of God to the Jewish people are irrevocable. He never goes back on what he has promised Israel. He still has a plan for Israel. And the whole point of the church in this age is to make Israel jealous for her God. To the Jew first. Not only that, Jesus, you might not know this, was a Jew and still is. He didn't get over that when he rose again. He's still Jewish. And he had a very special heart for the Jewish people. All of his sending out of the disciples to go out and give the gospel was always to Jewish people first. And then, of course, we have the Apostle Paul, who everywhere he went, if there was a synagogue, always went to the Jewish people first. And he got beaten and stoned and flogged for it, but he always went to them first first also we know that the jewish people were the recipients of the oracles of god the bible says in romans 11 they are the keepers of the holy scriptures of the old testament so to the jew first paul says so why does why does paul go to the trouble to mention this well he says to the jew first but also to the greek also to the gentile why because paul wants us to understand that the field is level he'll elaborate on this a whole lot in ephesians chapter 2 but he will say that listen There's no special privilege of being a Jew or a Gentile, either one. He's leveling the playing field so that Gentile Christians, he'll elaborate on this in Romans 11, will not be arrogant about their salvation and will not ever be guilty of anti-Semitism. One of the great tragedies and ugly snot cries I've ever had in my life was going into the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. It's called Yad Vashem, it means the hand of shame. And the very first exhibit you enter as you walk into the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem is this expansive display of all the ways that the church of Jesus Christ has persecuted Jewish people. It's heart-rending. Paul says, no, 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 no. You must not. You cannot be arrogant towards our Jewish brethren. And in the same way, Jewish people, you can't be arrogant against the Gentile and the Greek and those who are outside of Israel, because they have been grafted in. That's right, Jews and Gentiles. What I'm telling you is, God is the power of salvation for everyone. That means that the Philistine, and the Ninevite, and the Frenchman, and the East Texan, and the occasional pastor are all invited in. Everybody, our great common denominator is this gospel. First to the Jew, then to the Greek. So, why else is Paul not ashamed of the gospel? Well, verse 17, fairly briefly, Paul says this. Also, another four we get in verse 17. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. The enrightification, the setting rightness of God is revealed. We said a lot of times in a lot of different places, but I'm going to say it again. Righteousness is the currency of the kingdom next principle there, righteousness is the currency of the kingdom. Being set right fully is the currency of the kingdom. We hear this word a lot in church, but it sometimes can be a little bit abstract. We need to really unpack it and bring it down. The Puritans used to say this, Righteousness is what a righteous God requires him to require. You get that? Righteousness is what a righteous God requires him to require. Now, it can mean a lot of different things. It can be applied a lot of different ways. It can mean God's making right that which is not, that setting right, that in righteousness. That can be righteousness. It can also be what God himself is like. It's one of his attributes. It can be the moral character of heaven, complete and total purity. Righteousness is the character of God, and it is the character of God as the currency of the kingdom. And a person has to be completely rich, in righteousness if they are to abide in the presence of almighty righteous god so we come to god and we say listen but i've been i've been pretty good i've i've paid my taxes i don't i don't cuss unless i'm you know late for work and driving through a school zone too fast I, but other than that i mean I'm, I'm i'm pretty good and he says oh oh actually mm, all of those good things that you've done those actually count against you it's actually filthy rags it's actually la. It's, it's gross you know, so, so now what do you got? Well, I, 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 I demand righteousness from you, but, I, but I'm good. I, I, I cut my grass at least twice a month. I, 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 I help people across the street unless I don't want to or unless they're not like me, but I'm generally pretty good. Yeah, that's actually filthy rags. What else you got? I demand that you are set right before me. And the gospel comes along and says, I give to you what I demand of you. By grace, freely, you but merely respond and accept. What that means, what we'll talk about, is that when God goes through his process of enrightifying the creation, in verse 18, there's a different word for that. It's called wrath. So how are we going to get through when the wrath of God is poured out on all of the cosmos? We have been enrightified already. Through the gospel, it is revealed. That means it was a mystery that was hidden, that we could not figure out on our own. God had to raise the blinds. In fact, every other system of religion, every other system of belief is essentially a narrative organized around people trying to figure out how to appease the gods, how to be set right on their own terms before the gods. But the gospel comes and says, no, 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 God has revealed it. It is something that you didn't understand previously. The righteousness of God was demonstrated in the law and the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, but now a new age has dawned. It is revealed. The word is apocalypsis, where we get our word for apocalypse. It's the book of Revelation. It is a revealing of Jesus. The gospel is the righteousness of God is now revealed. Now we see how God is setting things right. So what Paul seems to be saying is that the righteousness of God is revealed. It is given solely by God. So let me reiterate, what God demands of you, he freely gives to you. But also importantly, when Paul uses the word revealed, apocalypsis, he always means in the great grand scheme of things, as in the future, eschatology, to the end of the age. How will we see the righteousness of God? How will we experience, endure, and pass through the final enrightifying of the world at the end of the age? Paul says, this is how we get through. So that's why I'm eager to preach the gospel to you here in Rome. This is how you make it all the way through. He says... For faith, or from faith, for faith. A lot of people have written a whole bunch on this. Essentially what that means in Pauline literature is nothing but faith can put us into right relationship with God. In other words, there's nothing that you do, accomplish, obtain, or achieve. It is simply faith. The faithfulness of Jesus is applied to us, and it is our responsibility to humbly respond and receive by faith. And then Paul quotes Habakkuk 2.4. This great little Old Testament prophet, this minor prophet, and Paul nuances it. He changes the word a little bit because he is an apostle on par of authority with an Old Testament prophet. Paul tweaks the words of Habakkuk ever so slightly. It says, the one uh, who is who, uh, righteous shall live by faith. The proper translation of that actually is the one who by faith is righteous shall live. A lot of our translations translate that a little differently to soften it, but without question, in my mind, and most commentators will agree, the proper translation of what Paul writes of Habakkuk 2.4 is, the one who, is by f- who by faith is righteous shall live. It is Paul saying, we are enrightified by faith, and if you are, you will live now and into the future and through the end of the age. All of this concludes Paul's thought that God demands righteousness and it is given to those who will receive and believe. They will live now and forever. What God demands of you, He freely gives to you. But God has already begun this process, this program of setting things right by turning enemies and objects of wrath into trophies of grace. And one day He's going to conclude the entire program. So how are you going to respond what are you going to claim at the end of the age what does this mean for you and me individually and particularly i just heard this week about a kid in dallas 21 years old named luke Loffenberg, who finally succumbed to a very rare and aggressive form of leukemia and he died on august 22nd just last week and it occurred to me as i was studying this passage and praying through this passage What happens when you, not theoretically and in the abstract, when you get that call, as Luke did in late July, that you've got two, maybe four weeks to live? When the finality finally closes in, what do you do? What will you think? What will you say? So, my last point on this goes like this. The gospel is our personal eschatology. My personal eschatology has nothing to do with the timing of the rapture, if there's a literal tribulation, or the timing of the thousand years, or any of those things, or how many dragons are riding, how many whatever. No, 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 no. My personal view of how the end will be. Are you looking forward to the end of your life thinking, I'm going to see Jesus? Or are you going to die under a cross? Meaning your fingers crossed, as in I hope I'm good enough. That's a terrible way to die, which produces a horrible way to live. The gospel is our personal eschatology. It says to me, I don't deserve it, but I have already been enrightified." And when I draw that last breath of earthly oxygen, and I breathe in my celestial surroundings, and I'm asked, why? Why are you here? I'm going to say, because I am in Christ. And you have declared me righteous i'm unrighteous because you've done that and i've never not believed that and he will say enter in so if you're here this morning and you're not a believer i just want you to know that what god demands of you is complete and total and perfect righteousness at all times in every thought word and deed from the moment of your conception that's all that's it so if you feel like you can crank that out then what we believe is God's inspired, authoritative, inerrant word says, then you can get in. But for the rest of us, we have no shot. Like Luther, we will be miserable trying to grind out our own shadow of righteousness and never even come close. So I invite you to believe. It's been said that the gospel is like a lion. We simply open the cage and it charges out. I invite you to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He lived a perfect life, fulfilling the demands of the law, that He lived, that He died. He substituted in my place, that He was dead in the grave three days, that He rose again, as a confirmation that He is, in fact, the Son of God, and that He ascended to power and glory at the right hand of the Father, and He will come again. I know that doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless the Spirit of God quickens your soul and you believe. So I invite you to believe. I'll invite you to stick around after the service and talk with one of us, talk with one of our elders or some of our other volunteers and to talk about that. If you are already a believer and for you that has only ever meant I'm going to heaven one day when I die, then I reiterate that Paul wants to preach the gospel to you because it is the power of God for salvation, for you who believe. It will get you through. And having that confidence and that certainty and that security gives you the joy and the peace and the power to live this day. What God demands of you, he gives freely to you. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for these two verses, for their impact, for their truth, for their power. And I do pray, God, if there is someone here this morning who does not know you, that you will move in their lives and lead them into a saving knowledge of your Son. Father, for the rest of us who are believers, would you encourage us anew that you, not for any reason other than you love us, have enrightified us, declared us righteous, having found us guilty, you declared us righteous anyway, and you will save us when the Son returns. Father, I thank you for our opportunity to be gathered together this morning. We pray that you would continue to use this passage to work in and through our lives. And we pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, I want to remind you about all the things that are going on out in the foyer with City Fest, with our Women's Bible Study sign-up tables, and we have someone here at the front, Colleen, who would love to pray with you and Jim Phillips. Uh, We'd love for you to come up here and pray with them if there's anything going on in your life. Let me ask you to stand for a word of benediction and we will be dismissed. This is from Romans chapter 1, verse 7. Grace and peace to you from God our Father